The Bob Murphy Show, episode 80. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Once again, I am going to be replaying for you an interview I did on a separate podcast because I think the content was so interesting and relatively unique. So I was asked by Patrick to be on his show, which they call Cave to the Cross Apologetics. And let me just, so it's normally hosted by two guys, Patrick and Tony. Let me just read a little bit from their website so you have an idea what this podcast is normally about. Patrick and Tony have been friends since 2005 and have met regularly since 2012 for book discussion. A continuous study of presuppositional apologetics began during that first meeting and hasn't really stopped. Together, they have read books from those in the Christian apologetic camp, atheists writing against the faith, and various philosophers. Now, Tony, who is the older gentleman, has graduate degrees from Western Michigan University and Grand Rapids Theology Seminary. He earned his PhD in the philosophy of science from Michigan State University, and Patrick has a Bachelor's of Science from Western Michigan University, where he minored in philosophy, and he says he's been mentored by Tony since 2005, during which time his interest in philosophy and apologetics grew. And so on this particular interview, though, it's just going to be Patrick talking to me. Tony couldn't make it. And uh, Patrick is also a big fan of Austrian economics and libertarianism. And so we'll see the interaction of those. And in particular, you know, that phrase presuppositional apologetics, uh, Patrick thinks that has overlap with Mises' approach to praxeology, right? Founding on the action axiom and the, the method of how, how do we deduce economic laws rather than the empirical method that is so uh, popular among mainstream economists, or at least when you ask them, how do you do economics? That's what they'll say, even if in practice, they probably do follow more the Misesian model. In any event, uh, I think it was a really interesting discussion. Like I said, even when I've been interviewed by other Christians about economic stuff, we didn't get into some of these topics. The one that you've, if you've seen the headline for how I tried to do clickbait on this was the issue of suppose Adam and Eve hadn't been banished from the Garden of Eden, would the laws of economics have still been true? Okay, and that, that's, I was like, huh, wow, that's a, that's a deep question. And so I give the answer. My particular answer is not, I mean, in other words, the yes or no, I don't think is really the issue. I think it's just seeing how, how did I try to scope out the answer. I think that's what might be instructive to some of you. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Patrick a co-host on the Cave to the Cross Apologetics podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Patrick, and this is Cave to the Cross Apologetics. And uh, no Tony today, which is fine, because uh, if he was here, I'd probably step over him just to uh, get more questions in from our guests. Uh, I'm a really big fan of our guest, and um, it's probably best that he's not here. So uh, let me introduce uh, Robert Murphy. Uh, Dr. Murphy is a research assistant professor at the Free Market Institute 
at Texas Tech University. He's also a senior economist at the Institute for Energy Research, a research fellow with the Independent Institute, an associate scholar senior fellow with the Mises Institute, and a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute in Canada. His current research focuses on economics of climate change, which he's also testified in front of Congress with, as well as the impact of uh, minimum wages. He's earned his BA in economics from Hillsdale College. So once again, we have a tie-in to the great state of Michigan. And his PhD in economics is from New York University. Uh, he has authored numerous scholarly articles and energy policy studies, over 100 popular publications for lay audiences, and multiple books, including in Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, The Great Depression, The New Deal, The Primal Prescription, Contra Krugerman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian, his newest one, and two of uh, my absolute favorite books, just in general, Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action, uh, which he's uh, taken Mises' uh, tome and distilled it down to people that can read it like me. And a textbook for junior high students, which I'm currently reading, uh, Lessons for the Young Economist, which is available for free from the Mises Institute. And if you ever want to read uh, Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, get uh, Dr. Murphy's uh, study guide because I always, I always say it's, it's like reading um, A Clockwork Orange. There's this like made-up language in it. And so if you kind of put the book down and you walk away from it, you completely forget what that type of language is. So you have to get rolling again. And so <laughs> Rothbard's pretty much the exact same as you, you really just need something to go back and kind of test you on what you make sure you know. So um, he also hosts uh, three podcasts, including Contra Krugman, The Laura Murphy Show, and the aptly named The Bob Murphy Show. So Dr. Murphy, again, thank you for joining us here. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Glad to do it. Yeah. Um, the first question is pretty much just for me. And so I, I can imagine what it's like to be Brad Pitt in the sense that how famous he is probably just, you know, leaps and bounds what I probably can imagine. How is it for you being the Brad Pitt of economists <laughs> for at least me? Um, in, in what, I mean, I, so I, I appreciate I, that. I mean, you were, mm -hmm. you, you just, you emailed me before the saying that you're riding a train. I'm assuming if I'm on that train, I am just, deluging you with handshakes and, and attaboys and just, uh. um, so it had, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but it is, I mean, so obviously like if I go to a libertarian conference or something, people there know me, there was one funny time I was at a, an economics conference and I was going down the escalator and people, you know, other people were going up. It was a big conference. It was like in DC or something. So there were hundreds of economists there. And I heard th this one kid, like they didn't know that I was, I could hear him. And one kid goes to the other. They were younger, obviously, so I'm calling them a kid. They were probably like 22 or something. And one goes, hey, look, that's Bob Murphy. And his buddy goes, who's Bob Murphy? <laughs> so <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, if this is the kind of thing, when I came out here to Chicago, when I was coming to look for an apartment, I was on the subway and or the the L train, they call it. And and somebody came up to me and he and he said, hey, you you look like this guy. And he held up my Wikipedia entry like on his phone. And it, you know, it was in a show, it was sort of picture of me. Yeah. And because though he didn't say like, hey, Bob, it's, you know, I'm a fan. Or so he just said, you look like this guy and held that up. <laughs> I was playing it cool. Like I thought the kid was, you know, he did it funny. So I was just playing back with him. And I was like, oh yeah, I do. Yeah. And that's all. And I just, I didn't like break, <laughs> you know, character. And I was just real dry. And, and then he just got quiet and turned away and he didn't say oh, anything. Oh, come and on. Then, and so then I was worried, like, what the heck? And so I finally, I, and I was trying to think of what to say. And I didn't want to say, are you a fan? Because that just seems so narcissistic. So I was like, <laughs> I said, oh, do you listen to the podcast? I came up with something neutral. Uh -huh. And yeah. he went, yeah, yeah. And then what turned out that the reason he reacted like that to me, instead of saying like, you know, oh, hey, listen to your stuff or what, is because right. he said he had done that to someone else six months earlier. 
he had, but it wasn't me. He had gone up and erroneously said to someone, Hey, you're Bob Murphy. And the guy was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> so apparently this kid's, this kid's got a lot of false positives, but <laughs> that's great. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just a huge fan. And, uh, I remember you and, 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 um, your co-host for Contra Krugman, uh, Tom Woods, uh, for those who might not know, we're talking about how no one really knows references, the Simpsons or Seinfeld anymore. And so, uh, my reference that no one will get anymore is that this summer has been the summer of Bob Murphy for me because I've been reading Choice for the second time. Uh, you just came out with Contra Krugman, so I had to—I of course had to pick that up, and of course have it both in the ebook form and have Tom Woods read it to me. And then also I'm, I'm reading your um, Lessons from the Uneconomist, and I actually have a physical copy of it because I've come to realize just how integral economics is, and I want to teach it to my daughters and your textbook pretty much for them in the future. So well, I appreciate this has been that. my summer of Bob. So, uh, well, and the, on the, I should mention just in case anyone does look at that. Yeah. That for that lessons for the young economists, that is supposed to be like a textbook. And that's one where I think you really ought to have the big physical book as opposed to just trying to look at the PDF. Cause there's lots of diagrams and stuff. Yeah. But it's amazing that uh, you and the Mises Institute have put it out there for free. Um, it really is, you know, I'm, I'm reading both Choice again. This is my second time because that was the very first thing I read of yours. And then uh, Lessons for the Uncommon. So I always forget which one's which because, I mean, they're, they're both covering the same items, which is neat because I'm making sure that I'm staying ahead in Choice. So that way, when I come to Young Economist, if there's something I don't get, then I don't feel as as bad and I just, you know, read it, <laughs> read it again. So, <laughs> so I appreciate uh, that. So, so uh, one of my goals on here was to have you on because I believe there's kind of a hole within Christian circles. And I, I believe that Christianity, there, there's no ground that God doesn't touch. And so that that's one of the point of this podcast is to say, hey, there's a lot of philosophy books out there that people are scared of because if you hear philosophy, you think, oh, you know, there's people with beards and polyester and tweed and, and what have you. And they're sitting on high and they're using words like, you know, uh, oughts and is, and, you know, they're telling you that nothing is something. And I'm saying, no, that there's a lot of good uh, stuff within these books where, you know, you, you might think, oh, well, that's for somebody else. I need it really dumbed down. And so we're, we're offering this podcast as a, a way to kind of have a, a book study, if you will, mm -hmm. and say, let those two people do the heavy lifting because they read it and distill it down. And um, I feel that economics is one of those ones where other than a few points. Uh, uh, you know, th there's R.C. Sproul Jr. has a book and a few other people that have written about economics, but it seems to be more in general statements. And and I know that you are a full-fledged, uh, you know, a Protestant Christian and your Christianity comes out within your writing. And so I appreciate that about you. In fact, I've the first time I emailed you, I heard about uh, Dave Smith, the comic mm -hmm. Dave Smith, who at the time was an atheist before he was a deist or whatever he is now. And uh, he was giving you high praise as a Christian who was anti-war and had always been anti-war and made good points uh, as far as utilizing your Christian worldview to bolster up the fact that you were anti-war. It wasn't so much that it flowed out of your desire and then you filled in your Christianity to say, here's kind of the God of the gaps. The way that you live your life is as a Christian and your podcast has has that as, as well as you're a Christian and an economist. And I think through living out your life in your work as well, you are proclaiming God's glory because of of the truth that you're you're representing there. So I know that's a, a big intro there, but um, that's one of the reasons why I want to have you on because I feel like that there's this kind of missing link between Christians and writing in non theological areas like economics. Oh, I, I mean, I obviously appreciate 
those words very much. And uh, it's funny you say that because yeah, I'm working on a, a an episode of my podcast where I'm, I'm collecting more examples where I think I'm going to be kind of f- try to be funny about it. And like the title will be something like, you know, libertarians, y'all need Jesus or something like that, because <laughs> just to show, you know, in certain areas where and even Dave Smith recently, he had an episode where he was talking with his you know sidekick, Robbie and th- things about like the ethics of, and you know, what do we, he was making an analogy with the matrix and how in the matrix, you know, they say in the movie that, Oh, we're trying to rescue all these people, but until you get red pilled, you're actually the enemy. Right. And, and you know, and so in the, of course the movie, the matrix, that means you can kill those people. I mean, you know, Neo and they, they go around training. They, they waste a lot of people, not just the right. agents. And so of course I don't think that's correct. So anyway, just things like that right. where, no. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I made that just that point on, on, on our podcast recently because mm-hmm. we were talking about ethics and the fact that if you believe that we're in a simulation, does morality still exist there and, and can you ground it? And if, if all people are, are just these people that are getting in the way, uh, d- don't, don't we have to address the fact that they are living people who aren't, you know, machines? If we're trying to bifurcate humanity versus the machines, it seems odd that they just say, well, they're, they're in your way. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, your example is is perfect because yeah, we 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 talked about that just just recently as well. Yeah. So and it, just to not mislead your listeners who didn't hear that, so it I would have to go review it of course before I put it in my thing, but it, it wasn't that Dave said so. Therefore, anyone who's not a libertarian, you can get. But I mean, it, it it did you know leave open the idea of uh, I, I, in other words, I think there's a lot of libertarians who they they pull away from it because I think their common sense or their basic morality kicks in and they realize, you know, but some of their arguments would mean technically if you see someone with a Hillary bumper sticker, strictly speaking, oh, they're aggressors and you can do whatever you, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's, right. and I don't, I don't think that's correct. And so there's lots of areas like that where libertarian theory only takes you so far. And then you say, oh, what's, left and it's like well as a christian you know i i know you know i have a, a something that's more fundamental and it, it kind of it's easy to answer those questions and you're not floundering around whereas if all you were really sure of was the non-aggression principle that actually doesn't get you that far right and, and i do want to talk about uh, how kind of politics i think has kind of infected the church a little bit as we as we get down here but i want to start out by asking kind of a few basic questions for you mm-hmm. um recently uh in in one of his uh ask doug podcast uh, uh videos pastor doug wilson recently said that there needs to be a christian take on free market economics uh, especially from the austrian or chicago school and that kind of piqued my interest a bit and as I was reading Lesson for the Young Economist on page two, uh, mm-hmm. don't worry, I'm farther along than page two, but you wrote, uh, the ability to think like an economist is a crucial component for your education. Only with sound economic thinking will you be able to make sense of how the world works, to make responsible decisions regarding grand political ideas as well as your occupation and mundane household finances. You must first decide to learn basic economics. So just in general, what is economics and why should we as Christians even care about it? Okay, great question. Um, so I think, huh? It's thinking like an economist. So this isn't this isn't something that I would put like in terms of the you know I would think longer and harder about it, and probably the way I motivated it in the textbook chapters is uh, more eloquent. But the way of sort of thinking rationally through consequences and understanding the role of incentives and um, different institutional structures and just how, uh, in particular property rights are used and the consequences of 
of using them and just seeing how people interact and solving the problem of, of material scarcity. And so I, I think there's a large area of human interaction. And I, I guess, see, it, it, it's not that, I mean, so economics certainly includes money, but it, it's more than just that. It's not just commercial right. transactions. Yeah. And, um, and so I think I actually, did I have it? In there? No, I think I had it in choice where I went through and I quoted from a bunch of different economists. It's, it's a, it's a tricky subject when you ask, like you look at different economics books and you like in the beginning, like to say, what's, how are we going to delimit what our field of inquiry is? And, you know, they, they actually, but it, it's basically rational choice, I, I think is, is the, the, the substance of what economics is. And that's why Ludwig von Mises titled his magnum opus human action. Okay. So when you say like, what's action he means as opposed to like reflexive behavior. So when you're, when, human beings make decisions and we're interpreting them as, oh, they're trying to accomplish some goal. That's, you know, purposeful behavior or what Mises would just call as action. So he, he doesn't use the word rational because to him that's redundant, that by action it means you're using your reason to try to achieve an end. And so that's what the rationals or the, the scientific study, that's what's called praxeology in Mises' terminology. Um, so that's largely what economics is. So that includes narrowly commercial things, but in general, when people, I, I would say like, you could say think strategically, but that's, I think that might be misleading to people. They might think it's just talking about games or, or some sort of, you know, a certain type of interaction. But in general, when people use means to achieve ends, that's the scope of what economics focuses on. And then when you put those types of activities in the institutional context of having private property and money, then that's what most people think of. Oh yeah, that's, that's economics. Um, and yeah. so the, the reason, you know, why I study that, I mean, just as there's all sorts of other, like, that's clearly not what physics is. Right. And so should any, should Christians be familiar with physics? I think so. Just to understand there's apparent rules that govern the material universe or, you know, energy and matter. And it's interesting to study that just to, one thing, understand God's creation, but also just help you make sense of the world. Hmm. And likewise, there are patterns or rules, if you will, that emerge when you study that sort of purposeful behavior. And particularly when you put it in the context of private property and money, and that's what economics is. So I, I think that that's a, a wide open area that is rich for human inquiry. And in terms of just seeing the, it's like, so now is, you know, my, Christian uh, perspective on it is that it's an amazing thing where God designed the order such that even when people are acting in selfish ways, they unwittingly end up promoting the, let's call it the general welfare. I'm going to be a little sloppy in terminology. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's, you know, this is standard stuff like, Oh, you know, Joseph and his brothers, what you intended for evil, God, you know, used for good. Yeah. So I think you see that shining through. And of course, you know, the obvious reference here is Adam Smith's invisible hand. And let me just say this before I forget. What's funny is the, one of the papers I want to write is just a document when this misquotation came into vogue. But nowadays, if you ask a regular economist, hey, what did Adam Smith say? He'll say, oh, yeah, people act as if guided by an invisible hand. Right. But in yeah. the original thing, Smith didn't say as if. Mm -hmm. He just said, by an invisible, they're guided by an invisible hand. Right. So right. you believe that it was God's hand that he's talking about there? I I think so, or I suspect yeah. so. I would want to investigate more. To, but for sure, the the actual, I have not found Adam Smith ever saying as if. 
that was introduced <laughs> later by economists. And then that got, you know, so I grew up thinking the quote was as if, and then once I looked it up and I was like, oh, wait mm-hmm. a minute, no, it isn't. Yeah, so. I, I, I believe that the uh, Christian Libertarian Institute uh, podcast recently did a a real good kind of breakdown of Adam Smith. And mm-hmm. in there, I saw kind of his his Christianity informing his his understanding of the wealth of nations, writing because he's talking about how people, we, we when we have kind of this free market system, we are using people's fallen nature in order to get them to produce a benefit to mankind. So, so by acting self, selflessly, not selflessly, selflessly, we're turning potential warlords who, you know, 200, 300 years ago would have gained power through their might and are allowing them to put that energy into producing goods for people and saying, ha ha, now I've turned a profit. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. I mean, everyone benefits from, from that. And so I think he, he's talking about man's fallen nature when, when he talks about their, their selfish kind of normal attitude. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Also, too, just to give more of a better answer, a fuller answer to your original question, as a Christian, too, just studying economics, I think in particularly the strand of it that you, know, you could call free market economics, for lack of a better term, um, it's, I think it shows, that, let me put it this way, a lot of the stuff that Jesus teaches, like on the Sermon on the Mount or something, it sounds crazy, right? And like the world says, no, no, that couldn't possibly work. That's a suicide <laughs> strategy if you were to do that. And so you see echoes of that sort of, you know, incredulity in political issues too. Like, oh, are you kidding me? Like you, you, you can't, like if you went back into the middle ages and and they, there was like the, you know, the system of, uh, you know, people having different occupations just spelled out for them with guilds and so on. And you said, no, no, how about just, anybody who wants to become a cobbler can become a cobbler. It's not that your dad has to have done that and train you and raise you, or you have to go find an existing master to train. Just, yeah, you want to be a farmer, go be a farmer. You want to be a painter, go do that. You want to be a carpenter, go ahead and just let anyone be what they want. And no one can force you to pick an occupation. I'm, you know, the the average person would have said that's crazy because what if everyone chooses to be a farmer? Then there's not going to be any carpenters. What if nobody decides to be a farmer? We're going to starve to death. That's nutty. And if you sat there and tried to say, oh no, don't worry, wages would adjust and that would give the feedback people would that would sound stupid. That would, that would sound like a very risky thing to say the least. And you know, they would probably tell you quite, you know, we, we have experience here. We clearly know that your system of free labor choice wouldn't possibly work. Yeah. And so I, I, I like, yeah, so that things like that in general. So, you know, me, me coming more and more. So I was, there was a period of atheism in my life, but I was still a free market economist at that stretch. So I'm saying that having that in my back pocket, like that, I think, helps open up my mind to see the possibilities that, yeah, just because or the things Jesus teaches, even though that sounds like, oh, that couldn't possibly work. No, you're being too cynical and jaded. If people, if more and more people actually did this and listened to them, you just watch what would happen. You'll be right. amazed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I liked one of your kind of more recent episodes too on, um, on the immorality of uh, slavery and not so much that uh, you know owning people is wrong because you know we can we, even as Christians we can we can make that that argument. But you talked about how putting slaves in in this kind of forced perspective doesn't allow them to reap benefits from their own uh, free will produced labor. It doesn't allow for them to want to uh, develop new technologies that they might. Where if you give them an incentive to to uh, kind of reap the benefit either through you know. Uh, 
profit sharing or the ability to just break apart on your own and only only produce you know iPhones in the 1920s, it would have given them the ability to to do that. And I thought that was just a, a really great take on. Yes, we can talk about the immorality of of slavery, and it's it's interesting to see how Paul doesn't really address that when he when he's talking to Philemon. He talks about you know love your brother as as a fellow Christian, and then if you do that, you kind of get also added benefits. And and one of those, uh, I, I think Paul kind of sees where where that's going to go. Where if Christianity does take hold, which he I, I think he believes he's going to, then the entire Roman world falls apart. Uh, it just in 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 its labor um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for for its servanthood, and it eventually did because one of the driving factors was well, if you're just using free free labor, who's hiring the free Romans to come in and, and do anything? Well, no one. So then you're going to have you know a problem just from free people not having work. So yeah, yeah. And what's and what's I mean, appreciate that. And what's funny there too is just for, you know to help. Your your listeners who aren't familiar with that line of argument, there there were a, there's a whole group of historians and social scientists more generally who are arguing that U.S. capitalism benefited greatly, you know, from the existence of slavery. Right, and so they're the reason they're doing that. You know, what I mean, they would say, well, we're documenting historical things and we're we're spreading the truth with our scholarship. But I'm saying, to what end? What political goal is that serving? Is they want there to be a, a stain on capital. They're, they don't like capitalism. And so they can't deny that, oh yeah, the U.S. you know produces more stuff than the Soviet Union did or that, you know, communist Cuba did or North Korea. But we want to, you know, taint it somehow and say, okay, but it's guilty because it has this original sin of slavery. And so partly what I was pointing out in my work is, okay, but look at what you're doing. You're actually teaching people, if you just set aside the immorality of it, the way to prosperity is to enslave a fraction of your population. And are you sure you want to be teaching people that? Like, let's make sure that that's actually true. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of funny when I'm going around saying, no, actually the U.S. was poorer in 1850 because of the existence of slavery. Had they freed slaves, you know, in the year 1800, the U.S. would have been even richer in the year, you know, 1910 than it was otherwise. And so it's not true that U.S. prosperity nowadays can ultimately be tied to the, the benefits of slavery, you know, putting aside the horrendous immorality of it. No, it's we're poorer now than we otherwise would have been. Right. And, right. and yet that shocks a lot of people and they get real defensive when it's like, no, you know, especially for those whose careers are, you know, for, for academics who spend more time denouncing slavery than I do. <laughs> it's funny that actually their dog in the fight is to say slavery is a very productive system. Like right. that's, that's kind of perverse when you think about it. Yeah. So we should all go back to that in case, you know, we can become too populous or something. <laughs> and, and I think it's it's interesting. Uh, maybe it's a correlation causation thing mm-hmm. where you have the Industrial Re- Revolution occurring pretty much right after Reconstruction. Finally, you know, a- anyone can make a, a, a for better or for worse argument there. But, you know, once kind of the the idea that Lincoln had of of what it wanted to do to the South, um, I, I, the, you have this big boom and it's kind of a, a worldwide thing because you've gotten away from war, especially in America. You've, you've got the ability to compete with still within states rights at the time before, you know, uh, Wilson and Roosevelt come about. And so I, I, I think that there's not a, uh, the industrial revolution happened when it did just because, you know, I, I think there was the ability for people to understand owned property way more and and people to be free to do more what the what they want right and i'm not enough of a historian 
you're right. I mean, clearly those two things go hand in hand. And yeah, the question's just which caused which. It, the other possibility is that it was the ideas of classical liberalism and so forth, you know, the idea of, yeah, like limited government and and so forth, and people should be able to choose their occupation. That once that started, you know, then you had experiments in that, that that spelled the doom of slavery, what, you know, as more and more people became free laborers and so right. on. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, just, uh, I'm kind of all over with the questions here. So, uh, so if I divert too, too much, let me know. Are economic principles then derived from nature and are universally true or do they, do they change over time? So I, I think, I, I hate to get so personal back in, into my take, but the only thing I learned from my high school economics was basic econ was, uh, I, I don't want to be a teacher because I don't want to become like my basic econ teacher and <laughs> something about uh, supply and demand. And I understood the su supply and demand uh, graph mm -hmm. and that's pretty much all I got from it. And unfortunately, once I owned a house, that's when I understood from people like you and Mises and, and Rothbard and the whole slew of uh, of the, the Institute guys, um, how important economics is then in this show, when when we talk about universal truths, you know, are, are they are they, for lack of a better term, are they derived from God? Does God instill them into place from either His nature or just the, how He's made the universe, or is it something that arises out of humanity's kind of fallen nature? Wow, that's a great question. Okay, um, I, I I do have to say one of my most crowning achievements with Twitter was asking you. Uh, Twitter question was, if the fall never happened, would uh, current economic principles be true? And you said that it won the day. So I have that like framed in my room. So what, what did I say? I said, that's the question of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, I, okay. I think <laughs> I, it, was, it was probably something like to divert away from everyone talking about, I don't know, Trump or somebody. Uh -huh. And so we're like, well, let's have a discussion on what's really good economic questions. And so that was my questions. Okay, great. <laughs> um, okay. So with the caveat that it's possible I'm going to say something and dig myself into a, <laughs> into a hole and then later say, wait a minute, you know, this, I, I misspoke. Feel free um, to use it on your podcast. It's, sure. It's all right. Yeah, no, this is good stuff. Um, so I, okay. The, in terms of just the, the basic logic of, of choice, let's call it, or, you know, what Mises would call praxeology, the, you know, the fact that people have, a, a, they have goals, sub subjective goals, and they use their reason, you know, they, they pick means to try to achieve them. And so here, there, there's no assumption of being correct. Like if you if, and make sure your listeners get, get the, the distinction I'm getting at here. If you see, like you, if you throw a rock up in the air, and it, you know, it goes in a certain trajectory. We just don't say, oh, at first the rock wanted to go towards the sun and then it changed its mind and went towards the ground. That's just not the way we, we you know, we don't attribute motivation and desires to inanimate things. Right. That's just that's not the way we we talk nowadays. Whereas if you do see someone, you know, driving her car and she's going, you know, towards the store and then does a U-turn and comes back, it's perfectly quote scientific to say, oh, she thought she needed to go to the store and then she realized she forgot her wallet and turned around. You know, you know I mean that that's yeah, that's not unscientific to talk like that. You know, to assume that human beings have desires and achieve, you know, choose means to try to achieve them. So you can actually derive a lot just from that type of decision, let's say, like the, 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 um, yeah, I guess the, the stance you take as an analyst to say, we're going to attribute intentionality and subjective goals to these blobs of cells, you know, whereas a, a chemist could look at your body, just a, you know, collection of atoms or something like that, or a physicist could, you know, and, and you're the, 
constituents of your body in terms of matter presumably obey the laws of physics, right? And so they could just look at you like that, but that's not the way we look at you as an economist. Right. And so the, a lot of those first principles are actually, there's not really anything empirical or testing about it. So for example, I can spin out a lot of the bullet points that would be covered in an introductory chapter of an economics book, like how to think like an economist you alluded to earlier. A lot of those, or I would say all of those principles, they're not really empirical. So things like to say every choice carries a trade-off or, you know, every decision has an opportunity cost or to say people respond to incentives. Those, they're, they're not mere tautologies. It's not that I'm saying a bachelor is an unmarried male, which is really just, you know, a definition. It seems like I'm saying something about reality with those earlier expressions. And yet if I say, you know, okay, every choice has a, a trade-off, you know, how would you test that? You know what I mean? Like, would you go and say, oh, well, we went and we looked at a thousand choices and in every single one, there was a trade-off. So, so far, so good. You'd realize, well, no, you're missing the point. Like just by the nature of it, if I'm deciding to view what you did as a choice, then necessarily there must be a trade-off because there was a second best thing you could have done. And that, and the value to you of that is the, what we call the opportunity cost. Okay. So it, it's, it kind of, the fact that there was an opportunity cost in your decision flows from the fact that I decided to call that a decision. Whereas, if, you know, if someone just flings hot oil on you and you flinch, you didn't really choose to do that. That's just an involuntary bodily reaction. So th- th- that's the distinction we're, we're making. Right. Um, and so all, all those standard principles, and even like supply and demand curves in analysis, I can build all that up. Now, and so the, the issue is, so economics as a science would exist regardless of the condition of of man, let's say, so long as, you know, people had choices and subjective goals and and it had reason. Um, But I suppose in the thing, probably a lot of economists would say is that in the Garden of Eden, there wasn't scarcity, at least the way we think of it now. Mm, And mm -hmm. so it's possible that it wouldn't have been useful to elaborate economics, that you wouldn't have needed it for anything. So the, it, it wouldn't have been false, but it wouldn't have been very useful. So I don't know if that's the way to, to get it. Now, and also, let me just mention, some people do push it even further. I think, I don't know if Mises, certainly Austrians, I can't remember who said this, but we're saying even in the Garden of Eden, there would still be the flux of time. I think probably it was Mises that talks like this. And so even if, you know, you, you, had, you, like you weren't ever worried about going hungry, still at any given moment, you could only be doing one thing or, you know, one subset of things that you could do simultaneously. And so you'd still have to order your day. You'd still have to come up with, what am I going to do right now? What am I going to do next hour? You know, if time still passed. And so in that sense, there would still be some type of scarcity because you couldn't do everything all at once. Hmm. There's a flow of time. And so then even there, yeah, economics would still apply to your decision on how to order your activities. Um, So that's kind of the, let me put it this way. There's there have been attempts to apply economic reasoning to unconventional areas, things like, uh, you know, choosing a mate or uh, <laughs> other areas or the economics of crime. In in some of those areas, I just think it's kind of goofy or it gives me the creeps, even in some places. Like uh, in in uh, Freakonomics, where it talks about uh, it's good that we had abortions uh, because low low income people tend to mm-hmm. cause more crimes. Therefore, we saw a uh, a, a decrease in crime because of more abortions. But. Well, I mean, so yes, that gives me the creeps. And also, I I think it was uh, 
what's his name? John Lott, I think, came up with some statistics. It might have been somebody else. Maybe John Lott just cited it. I think actually, uh, what's that guy's name? Is it Levitt? I think his his numbers don't hold up. Like his story doesn't work. Because if you look at like the demographics of, okay, the age of when the crime rates should have started dropping in terms of what segment of the population, it doesn't fit the story about Roe right. v. Wade and everything. But so, yes, I agree with you. That gives me the creeps too. And that's an <laughs> economist trying to do something outside the norm. But that, but that's not even what I mean. I mean, stuff like, um, you know, to say, oh, uh, there's the marriage market and as the supply of, uh, you know, I, income earning females rises, that means such and such. And therefore, you know, th- that, that kind of stuff, sometimes it gets, it gives me the creeps and, <laughs> Um, like, so can, like holding off on gold value, like, oh, hold on to your gold or your singleness now because yeah, women prices will be more valuable in right, the future. Right, yeah, that kind of talk. And and I get it there and I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling here. I'm trying to come up with, I mean, you could you could apply it. You could say, oh, the, the supply of, you know, friends entering the playground has gone up. And so therefore, you know, the, the price of, of being a friend has gone down or, you know, that kind of stuff. And so maybe we would expect kids to, you know, not, uh, to be meaner to each other or whatever. I'm, I'm making stuff up here, but <laughs> I'm saying in certain things it, and it's, and I don't just, and I want to be clear. I don't just mean, Ooh, it gets, it makes me queasy. And so I find it, just, I'm, I'm saying like the, the standard, like supply and demand analysis, because what it does is it's saying other things equal. Okay. And so it's right. It, um, you know, you know, like for example, you could say, Oh well, if you want your uh, your wife to to be nicer to you, you should just increase the amount you pay her. You know, so that when you come home at night, if you really you know you start giving her twenty dollars every time she says hello, dear, and technically that there's nothing wrong with that, but it's you know it says other things equal, and so maybe one of the other things that's not not equal now is that it's weird if you're trying to give your money to your wife to say hello <laughs> to you. You know what I'm saying? So right. it's 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 not that it's wrong, but that analysis in some situations in some settings, I think is totally be, beside the point and it's counterproductive. So that's, you know, to, to your earlier, your original question that, yeah, the, I think there are things that just our nature as beings who have reason in subjective goals. So we're, you know, we're individuals, which is what they were, that would come from, you know, maybe it wouldn't work to try to use economics to explain a beehive. If, you know, the, the individuals don't have different goals, really, they just all work together to do whatever's in the interest of, you know, the hive or something. Um, you know, given that people are unique individuals with possibly different goals or motivations and they have reason, then yeah, I think you can spin out the basic structure of the science of economics. But yeah, if if it's before the fall, there might not be much point in doing so. That might, it might not be that useful for anything. So that might be something, uh, a economic theology person would write their dissertation on. Yeah, could be. There you go. <laughs> we're, we're, we're helping people out already, I'm telling you. <laughs> hey, everyone, let's take a break from the discussion to talk about Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. This is Tom's online classroom that he designed, calling upon all of his friends to teach economics and history and political science that they didn't teach you growing up in the schools. Melodrama aside, it's really a great resource. Um, I have two classes myself called uh, History of Economic Thought, Part 1 and Part 2, where we go through the classical economists, then the subjective revolution, and then up through 20th century economics, covering stuff like arrows and possibility theorem. We actually prove it, if you're geeky enough and, and relish such a thing. The public choice school, 
what was the Lucas critique of Keynesian fine-tuning, macroeconometrics, that sort of thing. So lots of great stuff. And of course, lots of material on Bumbavark and the Austrian school more generally. So if you're going to sign up for it, though, you want to do it on either Black Friday or Cyber Weekend, which runs through Cyber Monday. If you're not hip, that means the Monday after Thanksgiving weekend. So again, if you're going to sign up, this is 2019 I'm recording. Tom's got a great deal going on if you sign up on Friday through the weekend, but it's for the master subscription is where the really good deal is for. All right. And how do you want to do it? You want to go through this link. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash classroom. Again, act before Cyber Monday or the end of Cyber Monday for the best value. But in general, it's good stuff. And also, last thing I'll mention, you can get it as a gift, right? So if you're like, you know what? I know all of economic history. And uh, quite frankly, I understand the Constitution and its ramifications inside and out. I don't need to have these people. But maybe someone else could benefit from that knowledge. So you can get it as a gift. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash classroom. That'll redirect you to the site and make sure that I uh, get a piece of the action. You know what I'm talking about? All right. Nobel Prize winning economist James Buchanan explains uh, what he calls economic odds in his paper, Afraid to be Free. According to Buchanan, the government, as saver view, can be derived from Keynesian economic thought as expressed when citizens may generally want to extend the parental role of the welfare state to allow the state to replace God. And uh, just to be fair, uh, he doesn't say too many good things about uh, uh, deists as well. Uh, but Keynesian economic thought, and and you come from uh, the the Austrian economic school. Uh, uh, I've always want to preface what you always preface because you always you always do. So I'll, I'll tee it up for you. It's not that uh, you know this d- derives from from uh, only uh, Austria, but that it comes from people f- from Austria. And so uh, uh, looking at the Wikipedia page for Austrian economics when I was first starting it, it's terrible. I I, I read it and I'm like. This this sounds all gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. So, what's the best way that that we can describe Austrian economics? And obviously, we don't want to replace God with the state as the Keynesians do. So, what what would be the main kind of differences between Austrian economics, your school, and Keynesian economics? Like, uh, it it that tends to be kind of the most popular one for the past what uh, hundred years, ninety years. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Okay, so, and this is always tricky too. And if you ask different Austrians, they're going to say different things about, you know, what are the defining attributes of, of the school? So, so yes, at the basic level, it's it's a school of thought, just like there's a Chicago school, a Keynesian school, as you mentioned. And the, it's called Austrian because the, Karl Menger, the founder, was from Austria. So originally that was a term of derision because it was like the German historical school economists. This is back in the like 1870s. Back when there was an Austria. Yeah, right. <laughs> they they were, you know, looking down their nose upon Menger and his, you know, and his disciples that were emerging. And so they said, oh, that's just Austrian economics. Like, you know, that's a backwater. It's not like here in Germany, which is the center of, you know, scholarship. That was that was where the term came from. And then um, World War II happened. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's amazing too. It just just to sidetrack you completely, um, how how much philosophy is lost and how much bad philosophy comes out of uh, Germany during like World War II time that we could have quashed. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have people writing things like misquoting Jesus, uh, because they come from a school of thought that should just be debunked. But because it took so long to come over, it never had, uh, the ability to, to be, to be impacted by other theories. So you just had 
you know, Germany coming up with both good and bad ideas during mm. during World War II time. And uh, it really needed to be be quashed, especially for for uh, anything Bart Ehrman does. Yeah, I mean, it really is amazing. You know, let's I don't know when to start it, but like 1850 to World War One that, yeah, the the intellectual milieu of all the people meeting in, you know, Vienna and in, in Germany and just all the thinkers involved and people coming and going in different circles is amazing. Or even just like Mises private seminar, when you see the list of who's who and, and the people that, you know, came in and out of those circles, it's a lot of not just economists, but, you know, other major philosophers and, and political scientists and so forth. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the, the Austrian school, it's, so it's it's certain it's individualistic, and I don't mean politically. I just mean like it it's it builds up from the individual as the the locus of analysis, and as opposed to if you say, well, what else would it be? I mean, because there there are types of economics that just look at big macro variables, like to say, oh, what's the price level? Well, you look at the money supply, you look at the velocity with which dollar bills turn over, and. <laughs> Then you can back out, you know, what the price per unit good, that sort of thing, where it's you know it's looking at, at the economy just as like a, a bunch of big numbers, as opposed to you know individual decisions and you know that you could say, oh well, prices we we start with individuals and they want to hold money, and what's the demand for money and that sort of thing. So, the Austrian economics certainly is it's it's called methodological individualism, and the other one's methodological subjectivism, and those are big words, but just saying it. They assume individuals are the concrete, you know, the, the atoms that form the analysis and that they have subjective goals. So Karl Menger, who was the founder of the Austrian school in a standard history of economic thought uh, book, it would be credited as one of the three people who ushered in what's called the marginal revolution. So that was overturning old classical value theory and replacing it with the new modern subjective value theory. So that's a defining element of Austrian economics because their founder was one of the people that, you know, brought that revolution. That, and, and so there, what does that mean? It's just saying when you're trying to explain prices, the ultimate building block or the, the fundamental building block is the fact that people have subjective preferences. And so ultimately, you know, why is a bottle of wine cost whatever $50? What's, why is the price $50? You don't start and say, oh, well, because the grapes were really expensive. And so the bottle of wine has to cost that much. Otherwise, the producer wouldn't, you know, be able to cover his cost. That, you know, nowadays, the way the economists think that causality is backwards. It's that the the final goods that consumers buy is because they have utility for the consumer in the eye of the beholder. And then that works its way backwards. And that's why people are willing to pay for grapes because they can be used to make the wine. Okay. So that type of thinking, that's something that Carl Menger helped usher in. And, and then, I mean, one of the things, the reason I think it's important nowadays for people to know about the Austrian school, this guy Ludwig von Mises, he developed a, a theory of the business cycle that other schools of thought can't, can't yield because the Austrian school has what's called a, a, an emphasis on capital structure. So just real briefly, I realize I'm throwing out some big buzzwords here, but in the Austrian tradition, they pay a lot of attention to the fact that production takes time and that you, things go through stages, let's call them. So this is going to be simplistic, but just so your listeners understand where I'm coming from, like to get loaves of bread into the grocery store, you know, that first they got to plant the wheat, 
then it's got to go to the next stage to the, you know, the, the miller and, and then it goes to the baker and so on. And that, that type of process, Austrians really take that seriously in their modeling. And in particular, they look at how do interest rates kind of help coordinate the structure of that production process that might, when you're looking at any particular good in its life cycle, as it were, it might take years to develop before the thing that you see, you know, in the store available for purchase. And because the Austrians spend so much time and care developing that understanding of that framework, that's why they can then come in and say, oh, and so if the central bank comes in and artificially manipulates interest rates, say by flooding the market with cheap credit that pushes down interest rates so they're artificially low, then they can see what would happen. Oh, it might cause an unsustainable boom, right? So that kind of explanation or theory, other schools of thought like the Keynesians can't even really develop because their model doesn't have this capital structure that, you know, takes unfolds over years. So it's it's not that the Austrian story is wrong in that approach. It's like you couldn't even tell that story in a standard Keynesian framework because a standard Keynesian framework is just, it's, it's real macro and aggregated and there's not enough distinctions or, or subtlety and detail to allow that sort of story to unfold. So I, I'm just there. That's not like the definition of the Austrian school, but I'm just explaining that's one of the components of it that I think make it so relevant nowadays because that's such an important element of our of yeah. our lives right now. Central banks, in my opinion, engaging in very destructive behavior. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's one of the things that uh, I don't know, you know, which hand was shaking what, but with presuppositional apologetics, uh, we have certain axioms that, that we hold to and there's not a uh, equation that we put everything in and say, you know, okay, add uh, the Kalam argument plus, uh, you know, the resurrection accounts, uh, historicity by, you know, uh, various uh, non-biblical writers, and it, it all equals out to uh, Christianity is true. Uh, we, we hold the fact that, you know, Christianity is true and then derive certain principles from that. And so with, with Austrian economics, I see people act, they act with purpose, uh, w- whether or not those those purposes are right or wrong. Um, you know, that, that's not the, the argument, but things like, how should we think about uh, um, when a flood happens and people coming over and selling bottles of water for $500? Well, you know, it, it, any any person that sees that and goes, oh, that's just immoral. But coming from your perspective, that's a great thing because then someone else will see that and go, oh, I can sell my bottle of water for $400. And someone else can come in and say, oh, I'll undercut them. And so you get a bigger supply into those areas. And and so uh, uh, the price will drop as a result of people competing with each other. And I think that's just one mm-hmm. of the the really awesome things to, to to see is is how much your worldview of economics informs it. Because uh, things like with with Keynesian economics, it seems like well, here's a thousand variables, and I have to either skew my my models so that I can deal with those, or I can skew it to say, well, these ones aren't as important. And I and I. I just like the fact that that you take a a kind of a, uh, a a different approach that explains what we see through these kind of axiomatic argumentation that that Austrian economics are known for. Well, yeah, and and you're right, and I didn't explicitly mention that, and I probably should have that. Yeah, when you're saying like, what's the defining attributes of the Austrian school? So yeah, one of the early battles that Karl Menger had with his counterparts in the German historical school. So it's true that Austrians tend to be free market in terms of their policy prescriptions, but it's not built in, 
right? right. In other <laughs> words, it's not that you just say at the outset, oh yeah, we we hate the government or something like that. Like it, it does flow. <laughs> and and it's also true in practice that the German historical school, a lot of them were, I would say, apologists, you know, for the Prussian Empire. And so, you know, so Menger with his critiques of some certain, you know, government intervention policies, that was a problem. And so one of the ways that the, you know, German historical school would try to get around that is to say, well, no, you can't, it's not like there's laws of economic, you know, everything in matter, it's a case by case basis. So here I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing and they spoke in German. Um, <laughs> and so, whereas Menger was saying, no, there's laws of economics, right? Right. In other words, like a, a physicist, it's not like, oh, there's one type of physics that applied back in ancient Rome, but then a different physics applied, you know, in modern day democracies, you know what I mean? Like that, that would be silly talk. And so likewise, Menger thought, no, I'm developing laws of economics. Okay. And whereas the German historical school would have thought more, well, no, what may have been worked back in ancient Rome with their system is one thing. And then now what works for us is a different thing. You see what I'm saying? That that's, they were trying to deny that there was such a thing as the laws of economics. And so that, right. that is one element. And then also, yeah, Mises, and this is one of his more controversial stances, and even not all modern day Austrians, you know, die on this hill, but Mises himself and, and certainly like Murray Rothbard and people who are in that tradition of the Austrian school thought that basic economics was a priori, meaning, yeah, you start fundamentally with the action axiom. You know, if you're going to decide to interpret the behavior you see out in the world as the result of conscious choice, I mean, because ultimately you don't know, you can't literally be inside someone else's mind and know that they feel things the way you subjectively know you feel stuff. You just kind right. of think that that makes sense. That's like a hypothesis, if you will. But once you commit to that, then Mises thought all the standard results of economics, he even called them theorems, you know, so that kind of shows he didn't think it was open to empirical verification, flow from that. And, you know, and people derided him as being unscientific and anti-empirical, but likewise, I mean, the analogy I use with geometry, that if you're going to learn geometry is certainly very important. You know, you can't go build a bridge if you don't know anything about geometry. And yet if you said, Oh, here's the Pythagorean theorem and you teach it to someone and they say, well, how do we know that's true? Should we go test a thousand right triangles and make sure it's true? He would right. say, no, no, you've missed the point. You don't understand what a proof is. We have these axioms and you know, these rules of transformation. And if you give me the axioms, then I can deduce, you know, the Pythagorean theorem. It's a theorem. I proved it. And you you wouldn't go test it. And that's certainly not unscientific to, to do that. So that's what Mises thought basic economics was. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess you're saying it has a certain overlap with a type of apologetics. Yeah. Um, I, and I want to be respectful of your time. And I've only gone through half the questions that I want to. You know, I, if, if you, I can go to like uh, 45 after if, if you want. Uh, yeah, if, if, that's, if yeah, that's okay so, for you. Yeah, okay. sure. So like 18 uh, more minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have you on again and ask you a whole bunch of other questions. Um, so, so then, a couple of things that you mentioned that Austrian economics views as important are both interest rates and uh, you called it a central banking. We uh, in America we call it a, a Federal Reserve system. Um, as Christians, how are we to understand this? Uh, Fractional reserve banking system, and I know that's another term in this, this fiat money system. Hey, hey Patrick, can I, I yeah. stop for a second? If, if you don't mind, can I go back and just say something I meant to say about the, the yeah. the her, like if there's a natural disaster and like bottled water and that that thing? Because this actually yeah. illustrates well what I was trying to say earlier about is a Christian and like why should a Christian know economics? 
So yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's a good example. So again, let's let's say the situation is there's a you know a, a flood or a hurricane or something, and the the roads are all closed. And so right now, yeah, the the local storekeeper he's only got a few uh, cases of bottled water on the shelves, and he knows he could quote get away with charging twenty dollars a case or you know charging four dollars a bottle or something like that, something that would normally just cost ten cents or whatever. And so most people are okay. Most Americans at least are okay with the government just flat out prohibiting that. And so setting up a hotline and say, if you catch anybody trying to price gouge in the wake of this natural disaster, you know, taking advantage of the poor plight of our fellow citizens, you call this hotline and the attorney general will get on that. And so I would argue that, well, no, as a Christian, you shouldn't be in favor of that because it's, you know, using the threat of violence to get people to do your will and, you know, someone charging a lot for water, it's not obvious why that should be a criminal offense, right? right? That, to me, that's that's unchristian. You're basically stealing from the person. You're saying, no, you have to sell it under these terms. And if you're not willing to sell it under these terms, then we're going to throw you in a cage or that we're going to mm-hmm. take more of your money out of your bank account through the state. To me, that's violating one or two of the Ten Commandments. So that, that can't be a Christian thing to do. And so I think the, the obvious objection would be, well, that can't be right or, you know, because it can't be true, Murphy, that the Christian response is to let storekeepers charge whatever the market will bear because, you know, that that's the consequences are too horrible. And so here's where, you know, the, the Bible wouldn't necessarily tell you how to think that through. I think the Bible tells you what the moral position is, but you would need the study of economics to know that, you know, this is stuff, of course, you were alluding to, Patrick. No, actually having a really high price for bottled water is exactly what you want to have happen because that rations the available supply. You don't want it to be the case that the first few people who get to the store after the hurricane hits clean the shelves out. Mm-hmm. Because if you had that, you know, if, if bottled water is still the same price as it was before the storm, then that's going to happen. The first few people who show up, they're going to buy everything. They're going to put it in their pantry and then everybody else is going to go thirsty. So that's not good. So instead, if you have a high price, then they say, oh, we really probably just need to get, you know, one case of water and that'll hold us over until they clear the roads. And so that's a good thing. And then also, yes, with a high price, that's giving the incentive for people around the country, you know, to go rent big trucks and to fill them up with bottled water and to go ship them into the region to, you know, go get through the, the floodwaters or what have you. Whereas otherwise, they probably wouldn't do that. It wouldn't be worth their while to organize the effort to ship a bunch of bottled water to Houston or wherever the place the city was that got smacked. Yeah. And so if you think it through, it's no, actually that high price serves a purpose. And then last but not least, I would say if you're a store owner and you're benefiting from a genuine windfall, meaning like, let's say you you knew the, the hurricane was coming and you thought, oh, the price might be real high. Let me, in case that happens, just load up on water. And so you end up you know bulking up your inventory way beyond what you normally would have on the off chance that the storm hits and then prices go up again, you want to reward that activity, right? So it's not just a fact of nature, how much bottled water is in the city. When the storm hits, if people were far sighted and stocked up, you want to reward that behavior. So that the next time a hurricane comes, uh, you know, the, the crisis isn't as bad. And, but to the extent that, you know, you're honest with yourself, you're a convenience store owner and you know, nah, the, the amount of water I had on hand, the bottled water, I didn't, I didn't bulk up. I just happened to be sitting here. I actually got lucky in the sense, right? The hurricane hit. I didn't die. My store is still open. And instead of me charging $5 for a case, I get to charge 25. That's a pure windfall to me. Okay. You still charge it and then donate that to the red cross. Right. And so that will ensure 
you know, then they can use the money for, you know, needy families or whatever. So the high price still rations the available quantity so that households only take what they really need. Mm. But then if you feel guilty and probably yeah, the Christian thing to do, so you're not benefiting from others' misfortune is to, you know, donate it to some philanthropic or give it to the church or whatever, you know, some organization that you think is using the money responsibly. So, so that's what I would say. So it's, yeah. you know, I, to me, that's, so again, you see how that knowledge of economics reassures you that, yeah, you really shouldn't just be able to stick a gun at somebody and say, because I think most Christians would agree if a store owner said, no, I'm charging 25 a case, you couldn't just take out a gun and say, give me the water for the pre-crisis price or I'm going to shoot you. I think or most send somebody Christians, else to do that. Right. Most Christians, you can't do that. And so I would just argue, okay, but if you're going to have the government have an anti-price gouging law, aren't you kind of doing that through a proxy? Yeah. And so I think to the extent that Christians would shy away from my analysis because they quote, no, it can't be true or it can't be the right answer to just let them charge whatever the market. I'm trying to show, look at the, the good social consequences. So you're just wrong when you think the way the world works is that following, you know, the straightforward interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount would lead to disaster. Say, no, actually it wouldn't. You think it would, but you're operating out of fear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's there's this, a really great uh, movie that I think all Christians should watch called Poverty, Inc. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah, um, I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing that when we talk about trade-offs in, in the Austrian school, how being helpful actually is hurtful at times where we think, okay, you know, we buy a pair of shoes and, uh, you know, someone gives them to poor people in Africa who don't have shoes. Well, what we've accidentally done is taken out all the shoe uh, manufacturers from the corner store cobbler to, uh, you know, the the Nike of Kenya or wh whatever it might be, uh, because we're bringing an influx of cheap, sometimes free goods over and we're destroying markets over there. And so by by understand, having a, a proper understanding of, of good economic principles, we're, we're less likely to engage in just, just give poor Africa free things instead of saying like, okay, well, maybe we can make proper short-term loans that uh, allows the business to build capital uh, off the bat and then, you know, uh, uh, you know, build machinery that will then employ more people that then they can become self-sufficient. And so they're not always hoping that, you know, Americans over here for the next 20 years are going to keep buying shoes that then they can have free shoes as well. And once I watched that movie, I thought it was really important to have this this kind of proper understanding of Christian ethics and values as it comes to economic principles. And so things like uh, donor C, uh, having kind of that one-on-one -on -one correlation of here's a woman who needs a house built and she has zero capital and she's she doesn't have any you know, any industry, if, if we can give to that person and, and build that one person to then have a direct influence over one person, then th that's a, a, a more proper understanding of, of how we can contribute uh, charitably without destroying economies, really. Um, you know, it, and, and Shoes is just one aspect mm -hmm. of, of that movie. Let, yeah, let me just mention, there is, it's funny you bring that up. I'm still grappling with this myself. So the the my, and I'm just being honest with you intellectually here, is parts of, so clearly stuff like the U.S. government giving aid to the Ethiopian government and the guy's just, you know, withholding food in order to suppress his right. rival. Clearly that's bad, right? So like, right. you know, government to government foreign aid, I think is a, is a disaster and that's well documented. It's some of the arguments though that Poverty Inc., I have to admit, if the argument went through, then some of the other standard arguments that 
free market people use against tariffs uh, are also in trouble, right? So like a normal argument like you would see in in like lessons for the young economist or whatever is like an argument. Oh, we got to keep high tariff barriers because China is trying to send us real cheap goods, (laughs) right? Right. And so then we'd say, well, the limit, what if they send us free goods? Are you telling us we're poor because China sent us free stuff? No, that's good. And so I'm just, it's funny. Like, no, that's a great point. Through, that's great so point. I'm not, because, but you're right. On the other hand, like, I wouldn't just let my son live in my house until he was 40. You know what I mean? Like I, I would, not merely because I would be upset, but I think I would be doing him a disservice if I just let him loaf around and didn't make, kick him out and make him get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was just giving him handouts as it were indefinitely, even though he was able-bodied. And so, yeah, there, there is something there and I'm, I haven't fully, you know, put my finger on exactly what it is. And, but, but yeah, I have to be careful and admit that some of the arguments people in the free market use regarding the poverty Inc movie would knock down the arguments they use when it comes to explaining why free trade is the best policy. So Mm. there is that. Yeah. But, and, and, and on a Christian podcast, I have to be honest. Otherwise I, (laughs) my conscience will zing me. Then the lightning strikes and and we're out. (laughs) Um, there's, there's so many uh, good questions about, Things that I, I I don't think when I'm I'm just a, a normal everyday Christian bef- before I, I I found uh, the school of of Robert Murphy that there's there's so many aspects of the world that that I viewed as economics as being either it's the stock market or it's you know building your budget and so mm. th- there are things like uh, the Federal Reserve and fractional reserve money and fiat money and I, I heard I've I've always heard different people talk about how gold is this really good thing to have. Uh, um, and and we should re- always return back to the gold standard. Uh, but th- there's so many good things that you talk about um, that that I don't want to just pepper you with with questions that are important, but that people should should go. Is is there any one of those items that that you feel that people should know the most about to either inform their inform their lives or inform kind of how they should look at economic principles within their country? Okay. Um, I don't know if this is going to sound goofy or not, but I think there is something. So I think a biblical Christian should be aware of the history of the classical gold standard and understand that money, you know, was not created by the state and that the, you know, the pieces of paper that the government prints right now, or even electronic tickets, as it were, you know, that's not what money was originally that the government came in and sort of, you know, pushed out the market's provision and gradually took it over and then even severed the link to the precious metals so that we have what's now called state issued fiat money. Um, I think there is a, a, a biblical element there. And among other things, the fact that we, you know, print presidents and stuff on there, you know, Jesus <laughs> saying, you know, whose picture is this on the money? Um, I, you know, I think there's that element as well. The, the, the narcissism and, you know, deification of, of these uh, mere men. But I, I do think there's something there about like, you know, there used to be called sound money. You know, Mises refers to that. And I, I think there's something there, like, you know, honest money. Some people might use that phrase. And I, I think there is something there about, um, you know, that, that the money is real and honest. And and I know modern economists hearing, especially if they're secular, would roll their eyes and, oh, you fuddy-duddy, you know, with your moralizing. But I really do think there's something there that the money, when it's produced in a market, is honest and sound in the government, you know, c- coming in, or I should say, I want to say the state, because, you know, some people use the term government pretty broadly, could include the family and the church. 
but this you know the political course of state coming in and monopolizing that and then just running the printing press i mean besides the fact that they use it to pay for wars and locking people up and other things that i think are pretty unchristian but just the nature of what they're doing like that they're high i mean I think it's institutionalized theft among other you know it's counterfeiting in a certain sense and um so anyway i i think and i think it's no surprise that a lot of people i know who are really who track with that line of thinking in terms of they're really against central banking. And so they also happen to be Bible believing Christians. So there is that overlap. And so the extent that some of your listeners are Christian, but yet they never really looked into this stuff. I, I would encourage them to to read up on, on, you know, you could get it in my book choice, for examples where, you know, it'll, it'll spell it out. But yeah, I, that that's something that's relatively new to me. In other words, when I, was into Mises and Austrian economics when I was younger. I wasn't that big on, you know, the, the commodity money either way. That, that didn't mean much to me. And I'm, I'm saying the more, the older I get and quote, the wiser I get, hopefully, the more I see like, wow, in terms of the the stuff that the state has done, like, yeah, the military draft is horrible. And, you know, the fugitive slave law, and that's horrible. But in terms of just taking over or, you know, taking over the, that, that's a good way of putting it. I think a lot of Christians understand the horror of the state taking over the school system. And I'm saying, yeah, and the state took over money production too. And that's yeah. really bad also. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's one of the articles that I, I really want to write for, for my blog is, is I, I think we get our, our political viewpoint too much. And it, I'm only speaking from, from the, 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 the points of view that, that I interact with the most is Christians tend to say, you know, I, I can't vote for the Democrats because all they do want to do is kill babies. But then they'll take their, you know, their economic uh, point of view, uh, n- not from their Christian worldview, but from being a Republican or, you know, w- whatever it might be. And so mm-hmm. th- that that's one of the things that I want to encourage people on this podcast is bringing everything under the central authority of Christ and saying not not what what agrees with my Christian worldview, but what from my Christian worldview can I derive, you know, principles from uh, investment, um, you know, it, it doing business, like uh, just God telling us to have even scales. And that's not mm-hmm. just even scales with other Christians or in, in money. It's it's how you deal with people, especially people who are different than you, you know, hold hold them to a standard that, that you have balance and the, that you have these even scales and that you don't have your certain idea of, well, this is evil because it's killing babies and that goes against God's will. But then we like it when this, this other group is in power because, you know, they're really ragging on those social justice warriors or the, right. the, the crazy commies are, are out there. Why is communism bad? It's because it has the improper view of man as being morally good or neutral and that, um, that through force sh- sharing should be accomplished. And so not that I want to get too political here, although I have my own ideas, but I, I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have, well, have yeah, you Yeah, on. just if I could yeah, yeah, follow please, up on that. Um, so that, that's a good way of putting it, that for those of your listeners who are, you know, I, I really like the U.S. Constitution, that kind of stuff, go look at what it does. When it, when it talks about money, It's I think it's like Congress shall have the authority to, I think, coin and regulate. Maybe it says money, something like that. It certainly says coin money. And so people think, I think nowadays, oh, yeah, so that that's why they have the Federal Reserve and they can... And no, back when they wrote those words, I mean, to them, money was gold and silver, you know, and and so all it had to do with the, you know, ensuring fair weights and measures, like you were saying, you know, the biblical principle of not defrauding the people that you're doing business with. And so the point of the, 
of them coining the money was not that the government was allowed to just take a piece of paper and declare it to be money. It was to, you know, stamp it so everybody could recognize, okay, yeah, this is an ounce of gold. You know, that that was the, the purpose. Right. Great. Uh, like I said, I have, I have so many more questions, but uh, they'll, they'll exist for another time. If, uh, if you'll come back on, uh, we'd love to have you back whenever. Um, I, l- let me just uh, uh, ooh and ah over you once again. Uh, everyone should go out and and get a, a book by Dr. Murphy. He's written on on so many great things. Uh, his blog is is amazing. Um, he brings in economics, politics. He's got his own podcast. One thing that I really enjoy that that I get a lot is whenever I see uh, Dr. Murphy talk, his analogies that he pulls, and I, I don't know if it's from just your your school of thought with Austrian economics and needing to to have really good analogies. But I view your analogies in things when you're trying to explain a heavy concept. You you'll you'll not only be entertaining, but that that you'll kind of hit it from three different angles and say, oh, if you didn't understand, you know this from this perspective here's two more examples that i th- that i just think that you uh that you always hit out of the park and and you're you're not an economist who like i said has the ivory tower tweed and and everything that that you really do speak you know non-christianese non-economic ease to people like us on on the lower level trying to trying to go through wikipedia and looking up austrian economics and not understanding it but then picking up lessons for the uneconomists and not feeling bad that you're 35 year old, years old picking up another textbook so I, I greatly appreciate your work um i greatly appreciate who you are i greatly appreciate your your statements from your christian point of view and uh people should uh, definitely ch- uh, check you out and also um look into uh your other podcasts uh, especially for the infinite banking concept um, and I'm sorry that uh, we recently lost uh, Nelson Nash, uh, who uh, was also an amazing Christian. Uh, your interviews with him, uh, just uh, always, I was smiling through, you know, you did like an hour and a half with him. And I'm smiling that this kind of old timer knew this, you know, great, awesome thing. And that uh, that he put it on paper, wrote a book and that 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 you and Carlos came back and, and, and wrote books about it and teach other people about it. So I, I, I appreciate all that you do. Oh, thanks so much for the kind words, Patrick. And and yeah, as as far as Nelson Nash, he was the guy who, uh, again, not that I ever consciously said, "Oh, I'm I'm not going to share my faith or whatever," but he, he was just so bold in in quote mixing his his religion <laughs> in with financial things that kind of gave me the courage and the push to say, you know, I really need to not, you know, keep keep my uh, lamp under a bushel or whatever. <laughs> That phrase is that that you know to to not be afraid and I don't want to oh I don't want to offend somebody by bring you know mentioning Jesus in this context that no people need to hear about him so yeah yeah absolutely um is there any uh, resources or people that you want to direct people to I'll, I'll definitely have the links uh for for your books and and podcasts in the description and uh, is is there just any general message to uh to Christians in general from a, a Christian and an economic uh, uh, person like yourself. Um, <laughs> read the Bible. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to be debating, uh, someone at the Soho forum on, um, Christianity and, and economics and things like that. Um, so if, if people want to follow my blog to be sure to, to catch that, that might be something of interest. So yeah, consulting by rpm.com is the central clearinghouse of all my stuff. So that's if people want to learn more, that's where they should go. Great. And uh, again, thank you. And talking to Brad Pitt uh, from my perspective uh, here. So uh, uh, thank you. And uh, we'd love to have you back anytime. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It was a pleasure. Thank you. 
You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.